Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 12th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Allstate Insurance Company and the state of California won a lawsuit for more than $2.3 million that proved illegal ownership, kickbacks, and fraudulent operations of two medical clinics in Los Angeles. Allstate alleged that chiropractor Bayum Suk Kim violated the Insurance Frauds Prevention Act when he submitted claims for patients at the two clinics that were illegally owned in violation of California's Professional Corporations Act. The two clinics, Wilshire Spinal Disc Clinic and Allied Medical Clinic, were held out to the public as legitimate medical clinics incorporated in the state of California. But they were actually owned and operated by chiropractor Kim in violation of California law that limits the corporate practice of medicine. Both clinics are no longer operating. The judge ordered Kim to pay $1.8 million in penalties plus over $582,000 in assessments and fees, a total of $2.3 million in the judgment. Allstate suit identified Kim as a chiropractor owning and operating the two medical clinics. Evidence submitted by Allstate showed Kim engaged in clinical and billing fraud, which included hundreds of individual violations of California Penal Code Section 550. The evidence also showed there was also illegal upcoding for services. This is the second multi-million dollar insurance fraud case that Allstate has successfully argued in Los Angeles County Superior Court in 2016. Uber won a courtroom victory when an appeals court ruled that its drivers are subject to individual arbitration rather than courtroom litigation in a lawsuit over background checks. The ruling that might help the ride-hailing company fend off another costly class action lawsuit filed by its drivers. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals found that agreements signed by two former drivers clearly and unmistakably require legal disputes be settled by private arbitrator. Uber hopes the reasoning will be applied to another class action lawsuit filed by drivers over the company's employment classifications. Uber agreed to settle that classification lawsuit earlier this year. But Uber's message to the judge, who was asked to approve its $100 million settlement with the drivers, was clear. Take it or leave it. In this way, Uber has hit an impasse with the judge who presides over the federal class action suit pending in San Francisco. Its demands that as part of the deal, the judge erase his own order intended to protect the ride-hailing company's drivers. And indeed, Judge Chen rejected the proposed settlement this August. Uber drivers contended in the lawsuit they should be deemed employees and reimbursed for expenses such as gasoline and vehicle maintenance. Those expenses are now borne by the drivers. The proposed settlement would have kept drivers classified as independent contractors. Several drivers who are part of the class filed objections with the court, 
claiming that the proposed amount was well below the total potential damages in the case of roughly $850 million. In an order handed down last August, the San Francisco judge rejected the deal, ruling that the proposed settlement on whole was not fair, adequate, and reasonable. Had it been approved, the agreement would have impacted about 385,000 Uber drivers in California and Massachusetts who are involved in the class action classification suit. But now, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case in San Francisco, in the unrelated published case of Mohammed versus Uber Technologies, said that drivers who signed up with Uber in 2013 and 2014 must go to arbitration, not the courts, to resolve disputes with the company. Judge Chen previously ruled in the companion classification case that the arbitration agreements were unenforceable and unconscionable. But the appeals panel said Judge Chen lacked the authority to make that call because the contracts require an arbitrator to decide all matters. The ruling applies directly to the two drivers who challenge Uber's background check practices in a proposed class action lawsuit, but it could have an effect on dozens of other lawsuits across the nation. Uber drivers have used the threat of a class action lawsuit to extract concessions from the San Francisco-based company. Having to go to arbitration largely takes the specter of mass litigation off the table. Uber could now drop the settlement talks altogether in the classification case because the appeals court could go on to unwind Judge Chen's certification of a class of drivers forcing most of the drivers to individual arbitration cases. One-on-one -on -one fights typically result in smaller rewards for individual plaintiffs. The class currently includes some 240,000 drivers from California and Massachusetts. If the arbitration agreements are enforced, the class could be reduced to only 8,000 people, those who had rejected the arbitration agreements when they joined Uber's driver roster. The Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, commonly referred to as simply RICO, is a federal law that provides for extended criminal penalties and a civil cause of action for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. In order to prevail in a RICO case, a plaintiff must prove two or more predicate offenses, such as fraud. In addition, a plaintiff must also prove a pattern of racketeering activity. These requirements open the doors to fairly broad discovery rights, covering practically any history of a target defendant that might prove a pattern of racketeering. Federal RICO allows a successful plaintiff to recover treble damages plus attorney fees. The plaintiff's bar has sought to apply RICO laws as a penalty in workers' compensation claims for at least a decade with mixed results. Conceptually, they argue that an employer, carrier, or third-party administrator concocts a fraudulent scheme that is used over and over to prevent workers from obtaining just benefits. Plaintiff efforts to succeed at RICO in the Federal Sixth Circuit, which is Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee, ultimately ended in failure. 
Essentially, in the Sixth Circuit, RICO cannot be based on an underlying workers' compensation claim because the court held that loss of benefits that the plaintiff expects to receive under a workers' compensation scheme does not constitute an injury to business or property, which is a required element under RICO. The tenacious efforts to win comp-related RICO cases, however, then moved to the Ninth Circuit, which is the nine western states, including California and Arizona, arguably the most liberal circuit in the federal system. In the case of Lori Miller versus York Risk Services Group, nine plaintiffs worked as firefighters or engineers for the Phoenix Fire Department, and York adjusted the department's workers' compensation claims. The plaintiffs allege in part that York worked with the city of Phoenix to wrongfully deny or delay their workers' comp benefits in violation of the federal RICO Act. York moved to dismiss the case early on based on the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which dismissed similar RICO claims against Sedgwick Claims Management Services. But that defense did not work in Arizona. Judge Sedgwick ruled in 2013 that the employees did indeed possess a property right in their workers' compensation benefits under Arizona law, and the case was allowed to proceed. But before the case went to trial, it was settled for an undisclosed sum at the end of 2015. Thus, the ruling was not tested in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But now they have lost a Ninth Circuit RICO case that was filed in California. John Black and a group of police officers and firefighters asserted a RICO claim in their fourth admitted complaint involving the city of Rialto and the city of Stockton, Corvell Enterprises, York Risk Services Group, and others. These plaintiffs allege that York, Corvell, and Rialto engaged in a pattern of fraudulently denying and delaying legitimate workers' compensation claims. Last April, the federal judge granted the defendant's motion to dismiss their third amended complaint, but gave the plaintiffs leave to amend for the fourth and last time. And in late August, the federal judge reviewed the fourth amended complaint and dismissed the entire case without leave to amend. The decision was based in part upon a determination that the workers' compensation benefits in California is not a property right subject to RICO. This is a ruling consistent with the Sixth Circuit. Plaintiffs now have an opportunity to appeal the decision in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Assuming a defense result in that tribunal, this would likely end the effort in the Sixth and Ninth Circuits, and these plaintiffs will have to go elsewhere. It will be important to monitor the City of Rialto case until it reaches its ultimate conclusion. The California Insurance Commissioner approved an order agreed to by California Insurance Company and Applied Underwriters Captive Risk Assurance Company. The carriers agreed they will stop selling workers' compensation policies that the two Berkshire Hathaway companies used without filing key addendums to the policies, which were called equity comp, with the Department of Insurance for the commissioner's review and approval. And 
will work the department's actuaries to agree upon fair terms for calculating future claims that would apply to existing equity comp policies. The agreement to submit to a cease and desist order was in response to the insurance commissioner's June 2016 notice that a hearing would be held to decide whether the companies should be ordered to cease and desist from issuing any new policies. The order halts the issuance of new equity comp policies unless and until the commissioner approves them. The order also provides substantial relief under existing equity comp policies, which includes eliminating punitive requirements for posting collateral and specifying new appropriate loss development factors. The CDI action stemmed from its decision that a complex insurance scheme in the Shasta-Linen case circumvented regulatory review and cannot be sold in California unless it is filed and approved. Shasta-Linen brought a case before the commissioner challenging the legality of these policies. Among the most troubling feature of the equity comp policy was the imposition of unexpected and greatly excessive collateral requirements upon termination of the employer's policies. The collateral requirements had serious and unexpected consequences for many employers. And now our crime report. 64-year-old Linda Morrow was named in a 31-count superseding indictment that was returned this August by a federal grand jury. The Rancho Mirage woman, who was the executive director of a cosmetic surgery center, has been named in the superseding indictment that adds new fraud and identity theft charges. She is accused of participating in a scheme that billed insurance companies $50 million for cosmetic surgeries that were falsely claimed to be medically necessary. The superseding indictment adds nine new charges against Morrow, three new mail fraud charges, three counts of identity theft, and three counts of aggravated identity theft. The new indictment expands on forfeiture allegations in the original indictment that would require Morrow, if she is convicted, to forfeit all of the ill-gotten gains obtained from the scheme, a figure that may exceed $20 million. The superseding indictment outlines a scheme in which patients were lured to the Morrow Institute in Rancho Mirage, where Morrow was the executive director, with promises that cosmetic procedures would be paid for by their union or PPO health insurance plans. The two allegedly submitted bills to insurance companies seeking as much as $100,000 for individual surgeries and as much as $700,000 for multiple surgeries. The indictment further alleges that some patients who underwent multiple surgeries at the Institute suffered severe medical complications from the procedures. The defendant allegedly used the names and signatures of patients without their knowledge to obtain payments for procedures that were not covered by insurance. Last month, Morrow's husband, 71-year-old Dr. David M. Morrow, a cosmetic surgeon and dermatologist who was the owner of the clinic, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit mail fraud and filing a false tax return. Dr. Morrow agreed to pay more than $1 million in restitution to victims. The victim health insurance companies included Anthem, Blue Cross, 
Blue Cross Blue Shield of California, and many others. Dr. Morrow is scheduled to be sentenced by Judge Staten on December 2nd, at which time he will face a statutory maximum sentence of 23 years in federal prison. And in regulatory news, the FDA will hold a public two-day meeting in November to review the extent to which so-called off-label information about medicines may be disseminated to physicians. Off-label information is regulatory parlance for materials that describe unapproved uses of a drug. Doctors are in fact allowed to prescribe a medicine for an off-label unapproved use, but Drug makers have long had restrictions on their ability to distribute such information, such as reprints of medical studies, and have lobbied Congress and the FDA to loosen these regulations. Despite such efforts, the FDA has taken a firm stance toward the issue. A key concern is that public health could be jeopardized if a company were to distribute information about an unapproved use that had not been proven to be safe and effective, a standard for regulatory approval of drugs. The issue became highly contentious after a 2012 ruling by a federal appeals court that overturned the criminal conviction of a jazz pharmaceutical sales rep who was prosecuted for encouraging doctors to prescribe a drug for unapproved uses. The court ruled his speech was protected since the information was truthful and not misleading. Since then, drug makers have argued that conveying certain types of information is protected by the First Amendment. The debate accelerated last year when drug maker Amarin filed a lawsuit arguing it had the right to off-label marketing so long as the information provided to doctors was truthful and not misleading. A federal judge agreed with the company, and the FDA recently reached a settlement with Amarin. Throughout these events, the FDA indicated it would issue regulations on off-label marketing and hold a public meeting to review the myriad of issues. The upcoming meeting, which will be held on November 9 and 10 at the FDA offices in Silver Spring, Maryland, is supposed to give the public a long-awaited chance to convey their opinions and debate the issue. In a notice published in the Federal Register, the agency poses several potential questions for which it hopes to receive responses about the pros and cons of off-label marketing. It's not clear how long it will take the FDA to issue new regulations. The Governing Committee of the California Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau approved an amended and reduced rate filing for January 2017 workers' compensation rates. It did so based on the hope that California Governor Jerry Brown signs two bills into law and that those bills end up producing a cost savings in the state's massive workers' compensation system. The committee recommended a 4.3% rate reduction in premiums. And just a month earlier, it had recommended only a 2.6% reduction. The move by the WCIRB committee was surprising for some. The bills the WCIRB is pinning its hopes on are Senate Bill 1160 and Assembly Bill 1244. 
AB 1244 is designed to remove from the workers' comp system doctors found to have committed a felony or misdemeanor involving fraud or abuse of the Medi-Cal program, Medicare, or the workers' comp system itself. The bill would also keep those doctors from filing liens. According to the DWC, 10% of liens filed between 2011 and 2015 were filed by providers with fraud indictments or convictions. The other bill, SB 1160, places limitations on the utilization review process and also would stay any physician or provider lien upon the filing of criminal charges against them for specified offenses, including medical fraud. The DWC has posted an order adjusting the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system as required by the California Labor Code. The Physician and Non-Physician Practitioner Fee Schedule Update Order adopts the CMS Medicare National Physician Fee Schedule Relative Value File, RVU-16D, October 1, 2016 Quarterly Update and the National Correct Coding Initiative Physician Practitioner Services CCI edits, October 1, 2016 quarterly update, as well as the National Correct Coding Initiative Medically Unlikely edits, October 1, 2016 quarterly update. The order adopting the OMFS adjustments is effective for services rendered on or after October 1, 2016. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarrett, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.